Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now, I don't often struggle to describe the guests on this show. Fashion tech designer, digital media lawyer, academic, broadcaster, inventor, composer, CEO, AI professor, storyteller, innovation specialist, philosopher, one of the bees in ABBA. But today's guest is not so easily summed up. I guess David Batstone is a journalist first and foremost. He's become known as a public speaker on human rights, and he's also a theologian and ethicist. David's the author of Not For Sale, The Return of the Global Slave Trade and How We Can Fight It, in which he wrote about human trafficking and how social inequality and poverty make things easy for traffickers. He's also, and this is the bit that I struggle to make fit in my head along with all the other things I knew about him, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist. He's a professor of entrepreneurship and innovation at the School for Management at the University of San Francisco. He's a money guy, investing money in helping others build new businesses in a corporate world, while at the same time fighting against inequality. And he's been at this a while. In his late 20s, he took Bono and Ali Hewson to El Salvador and Nicaragua, a trip that inspired much of 1987's The Joshua Tree album. He's a man of contradictions, in other words, a man of many places and many stories. And the odd technical glitch aside, I really got a lot out of this conversation with David Batstone, and I hope you will too. Enjoy. David Batstone, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. Hey, it's great to connect with you. I find you in Croatia today. Is a holiday, work, something else? Well, you know, that's actually a wonderful frame because I really don't think of what I do every day as either work or play. I, I really blend the two. And so I am working on a project in Croatia. Also, my office is wherever my laptop is. So I've developed this kind of lifestyle where I try and get out in nature and do hikes and, you know, do things in the morning. And then I work on my laptop in the afternoon wherever I am in the world. So Croatia is my summer. Fantastic. So you're a mobile ethicist. <laughs> uh, I used to teach ethics and you know, had a parallel life. You could call me bipolar, but I had a, a life as a venture capitalist and in Silicon Valley. And so how do those two things work together? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny. And then, by the way, I run a um, global human rights agency. So, you know, very three uh, strange kinds of threads in my life. And I, we can talk about how I bring those together. But one day, my dean at my university said, look, you're very successful at what you're doing in business. Why don't you teach in the business school? And so I teach innovation and entrepreneurship now. And, you know, I like to believe that I put ethics into the DNA of everything I do. But, you know, that's a right. story. So let's do the pathway, because to come from theology, I understand, to ethics, to business, to entrepreneurship, innovation, it's a strange journey. Where do you come into this? Well, there's lots of points I could parachute into my story. And I guess a good place might be in my 20s when I was uh, doing my PhD at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And it was in, as you mentioned, religion and ethics. I was working in South America and well, really there is a, what we call Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua. And my PhD dissertation was focused on that region and how politics and economics were shaped by people's religious kind of viewpoint. Mm -hmm. 
And I was working with communities in economic development. And I started playing with a lot of different business models and introducing technology that was appropriate to the villages. So I come back to the United States and I find that this kind of experimentation of technology, business, and you know, social influence was becoming something interesting in a thing called the internet. Mm-hmm. And so Wired Magazine, magazine that sure. deals with technology in the United States, contacted me and wanted me to start writing for them. I started writing for them, and then I got approached to start a, a magazine that looked at these new trends in business and technology. These little companies called Amazon and eBay and Yahoo were all starting up, and they wanted to do a magazine called Business 2.0. Uh-huh. So I stumbled into it, really. I didn't really, there was no roadmap there. I just followed my curiosity and what I thought worked for people. So you came at this through journalism? I did. Yeah, it was through journalism. Absolutely. I was writing for different magazines and newspapers in America. And then it just kind of migrated towards, you know, magazines that were dealing with innovation were attracted to what I was writing about. Hmm. So that's how I got into that business. But then one day, what I found is that because this was such an emerging new industry, what was going on in the internet and new technologies, that because I was interviewing founders of all these companies and interviewing them, I got to know more about what they all were doing than they knew collectively. Uh You know, I remember this watershed moment when the founders of eBay, I was having an interview with them and I was saying, oh, auction, that's really interesting. Buyers and sellers. And and I said, so what's your business model? How are you going to make money? And one founder said, well, we're going to, you know, have the buyer give me his philosophy. And then then he just stops for a second. He goes, what do you think of that? I go, well, I don't know. I'd be worried that the seller might think. And I just gave my opinion. And then the one founder said to the other founder, see, I told you that wouldn't work. And they start arguing with each other. I thought, oh my God, you guys are making this up. Right. And I, it hit me then. I would rather be making it up than writing them about them making it up. I joined the uh, dark side, as it were. Right. I became an entrepreneur and investor. Wow. So where did you start? And I guess the tech industry, what was your sort of entry into that? I actually got invited to uh, join a venture capital firm. Mm-hmm. You know, here I have a PhD in religion and ethics. Uh-huh. You know, no background in really uh, investing. Investment bank, venture capitalist group. When I was interviewing them, they stopped me and said, hey, you know a lot more about this industry than we do. Would you join us? And I said, I don't know anything about investing. They go, well, we'll teach you that. We want your knowledge about how this... For some reason, I had this innate intuition about how things work, how technologies actually matter rather than being enamored with the technology. It's right the anthropology of it and how it engages people and how it engages communities. That was just an instinct I had. And and I guess that's what kind of took me to where I am today. Sure. So my perception of some of these companies that you're talking about and some of the, I guess, that that world that you're talking about is that the underlying philosophy is one of kind of extreme exploitation. Yeah. How do you sort of balance that with this sort of deep interest in ethics and human rights and those sorts of things? Do you basically have to switch off one part of your brain to go and work in another part? Or are you able to actually bring some of that with you into that domain? Well, it, it was a journey. I felt I took each experience almost as a another waypoint on my journey to learn more. And I am kind of embedded myself in capital investments and technology companies. Mind you, in those days, all these companies like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, they all thought they were going to change the world. Right. I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, comedy show Silicon Valley, but... It, uh, bits and pieces, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it depicts well that sense of, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to change the world, you know, and everyone, uh-huh. you know, they felt like it was kind of a Grateful Dead followers uh, and techies, nerds kind of meet, you know, capitalism. And they thought that they were going to have a brave new world where, you know, everybody's equal. Internet's going to be a great leveler. You know, you have equal access to information and distribution. And so it's really kind of a, I suppose at that stage, I didn't feel such a conflict. Sure. But as that industry, you know, developed and I began to see the inequities replicate and mirror what was happening in every other part of our society, mm-hmm. I became less and less enamored with the ideology of how this was going to be revolution. Right. Because it starts off very John Perry Barlow and ends up very Facebook, doesn't it? There you go. That John Perry Barlow is the perfect Grateful Dead guy to that you found the right character to kind of push that image. Uh-huh. Okay, so in the world of business and technology, how can we be good? Yeah. Well, I felt like I needed to really get, you know, it feels like this you know, very long journey. And I'll try to keep it really short. But what happened as I was a venture capitalist, as I was in Silicon Valley, and this crazy event happened to me where I discovered that my local restaurant in San Francisco was the center of a human trafficking ring that had trafficked over 500 young teenage girls from India into America for the purpose of forced labor, forcing them first to work in the restaurant Mm. and then taking them to fruit and vegetable fields and brothels in Northern California. So it's just like, how can this happen in the United States of America in the 21st century? Like, so I began to you know, take my journalistic skills, my investigative skills, and I began to look into it on the side. And I finally you know, discovered enough about the extreme global exploitation that was happening to people through labor. And so I uh, took a year leave of absence from my venture capital firm, and I went around the world to understand. I followed the money, actually. I went from hmm. my restaurant to India. I went from Los Angeles, where 110 Thai women were locked into a uh, factory and forced to sew clothes every day. And I went to Thailand. So I followed the money. And I was going to take a year. My plan was just to take a year leave of absence, mm-hmm. write a book, expose it, and then go back to my life in Silicon Valley. But, you know, it's funny. You take one step, you've got two feet. Next thing you know, you're taking a second step. It does seem like something that you don't go back to your regular life from afterwards. Exactly. And I just couldn't go back. But... I really feel like things make sense looking back. Sometimes you don't know what's happening for, but you look back, trying to piece together my life. That wow, now I have these skills in venture capital. I have these kind of deep passion for these people who are being taken advantage of. And unfortunately, most people who do something about, you know, they turn to models that don't work. What happens is that, you know, what I was trying to do is I wanted to find some way to address this. And unfortunately, what happens when you're trying to address a social or an environmental crisis or a problem, the way that our mind frame is, our paradigm is that we turn to models that I don't find are very scalable or very viable. You know, we call them philanthropy. We call them NGOs or nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And I did the same thing because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people in human trafficking. So I started an NGO of a charity called Not For Sale. Right. And for five years, we very passionately and with great sincerity, we raised charity to build villages for people that were in trouble. But after five years, I said, you know, here I am a venture capitalist. I have these skills. I have this network. Why am I using a model that is not functional? Why not try to use the same networks and capital and cutting edge technology to deal with things I care about? And that's when I began to bring those worlds together. Right. So Not For Sale is the book as well as the charity, right? Exactly. Who was the target for the book? Who did you want to read that? I really addressed it to, I would say, influencers. So 
it was people who would not be aware and say political leadership and business leadership. A lot of the book talks about supply chains and how embedded in the supply chains are everything from diamonds to apparel to iPhones. There is slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, there is forced labor. So, you know, I did a lot of, for about a year and a half, two years, I did a lot of speaking to those groups. So the book was really, these days I, I see a book as a pamphlet. It gives you an opportunity to introduce you to an audience and then you can go further with them. I really, you know, for I would say two or three years, I was mostly on the circuit talking about not for sale. Then I would get donations and it was a charity campaign. And I don't regret it. I guess I learned a lot and I feel like we gained a lot of reach from doing that, Mm -hmm. but it certainly wasn't very scalable. Right. I guess the ambition was to eradicate slavery from the capital system, but can you go further than that? Can you get rid of exploitation and inequity from business? I mean, is that something that can even work? I'm on that experimental pathway right now. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, that's my goal. And if not eliminate, at least provide options and alternatives and workable options and alternatives. Mm -hmm. So after about five years of beating my head against the wall, trying to beg people for money, I decided a different model that goes exactly in the direction you're talking about. I wanted to create an investment company that would start incubate companies or find other companies that I could help invest and grow. That had a double objective. One is to end exploitation and the other is to make a profit. And that's what I've been doing for the last eight years. It seems like the right time to be doing that. We're very conscious of things like green issues and where there's a lot of talk about, at least talk about inequity and about social justice and those sorts of things. And the companies that you're investing in seem to sort of fit that model. Is it good business to get into organics and ethical sourcing and those sorts of things? Yeah, we have a portfolio of companies. Actually, we have three funds. And we have a portfolio of companies. And I can share with you just very quickly a few of those companies to give you an idea. Yeah, for sure. One is a beverage called Rebel. And we Mm -hmm. source all of the ingredients in first the Amazon of Peru when we started the company. Uh, Then later, we're able to now source in 32 countries around the world. It's the number one selling organic health beverage in America. And the way that we create the company is that we source in a way that not is the cheapest ingredient, but where we can have the most impact where we can help the most farmers and families. And then we return 2.5% of the revenue that we make. for. So when you buy a bottle, what I wanted, I didn't want like, you know, people say, well, we're going to give some percentage of our profit. I wanted people to know that when you buy a bottle of Rebel, mm-hmm. money's going directly back to the communities that we're serving. And we're yeah. creating just and fair wages at the beginning of the process. So we're creating economic platforms of viable, sustainable labor. But then we're taking, every time you buy a bottle, we're giving money back to build infrastructure like schools and medical clinics and things of that nature. The thing is, is that Rebel was the first experiment. And again, we took in investors. Mm -hmm. So we have investors, but we let them know that we have a double mission. One is give them a return on their investment. And two is to bring sea change. So most of my investors, they need to be able to believe in the impact. They can't just say, well, why are you sourcing ingredients? We can get cheaper ingredients. I know that's not our goal. And so my investors know that going in. But for them as well, it's a better way in investing in, in designing the world in a better way. And I guess that's the people I get attracted to are attracted to me. They understand that the market and the way that the returns and, and how capital works does not have in the equation people and planet. And so to put people and planet into that equation, part of this investment is a recognition that we are designing a future. And so the people planet have to be a part of that equation. Mm-hmm. And so your returns may not be the same that you'll get if you have a 
investor that is only concerned about how much return they can give you. I do really well. My investors do well, but I do it in such a way that I make sure that the priorities about how we engage in impact communities and how we respect the dignity of the planet is a part of the process. And so I'll tell you, though, if someone comes to me or I have a business idea uh, or I have an idea about, say, I'd like to provide a better sustainability model for the Amazon River in Peru. I go, okay, what's the business model? And they'll go through it and they go, well, that sounds like a great social or environmental model, but there's no business there. Mm -hmm. I can't invest because I'm trying to find that crossroads where business that is viable and scalable meets change for designing the future. And so that really then narrows the pool of companies that I'll start or I'll invest in. Okay. Tell me about Right Reality. That was the early incarnation of what has become Just Business. Right Reality was the business consulting where I started this with, Mark Wexler. We were doing consulting for companies. And then we said, let's start our own investment company instead mm -hmm. and let's do this ourselves. And then Rebel was our first. Yeah. Our latest one is really exciting one for me. I'll give you another example. It's more in the technology area where we're um, recycling lithium-ion batteries. Everything in, your, in the Tesla to the iPhone to your power tool are using lithium-ion batteries, but only 4% of the world's lithium-ion batteries are being recycled today. So you have all these elements, nickel, cobalt, lithium, of course, and all magnesium, they're all in these batteries. And we keep digging more and more earth in order to make more and more batteries. And it's only exponentially growing the batteries that we're using. And it will sure. continue to grow. So what we discovered is that those materials can be recycled infinitely. That is, they never deplete. Mm. So every time we recycle a battery, it's one less scoop of earth we have to dig. So that's a beautiful company for me where it's going to be very lucrative for my investors, I believe. But it's also going to have a great impact um, reducing the amount of mining that needs to be done. For sure. Yeah. And I guess landfill as well. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. So I believe that we come up with economic solutions to social environmental problems. Then there is going to align incentives and there's going to be a growing demand for those solutions rather than somehow, you know, I could go out in front of a mine with a picket and say down with mining, mm -hmm. but I'm certainly not going to bring the change that I hope to see. Right. So what you're trying to do instead is not just to incentivize the recycling of the products that the mining companies create, but actually to disincentivize mining. Exactly. Because why would you mine? It's so costly when mm -hmm. we have enough materials already available for making more batteries. In fact, the amount of batteries we have sitting around today, we probably don't have to mine for the next four years. Interesting. So what can people do who are setting up new companies? What sort of questions can they ask themselves about the nature of their business so that they can at least be in alignment with some kind of ethical principles? I think it has to happen at the very beginning. I don't think that an entrepreneur can say, you know, one day, you know, when I start making, you know, when we reach $20 million, then we're going to start doing some impact. Or, you know, I, I want to start being more environmentally conscious. Or It has to start from the very beginning. I'm also a professor, by the way, at the University of San Francisco. I teach entrepreneurship still. And what I say to my students is that they're lucky to be alive right now because there are such critical needs in the world that need entrepreneurs. And, you know, just look at the world's population, whether it's you know, 2.5 to 
3 billion. And such a small percentage of that actually has a sustainable life right now. And that's an enormous population of people to find to help them find great employment for. It's a great uh, consumer culture. It's great. But what does that look like? And how do you design that? How do you organize capital to reach areas that don't receive capital today? So I think it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. And unfortunately, too many university students, whether in Europe or America, they obsess about the small percentage of deployment of capital today in Europe and America when they see opportunities are much larger. And can you tell me a bit of a story about Krunam. Yeah. Because I think that's a really interesting way into what you do and to, to think about what you do. And I appreciate that because it's sometimes hard to embrace that mistake. He's talking about you know recycling batteries and saving people from human trafficking, and it seems very disparate. I think Krunam, in many ways, is the heart and soul of everything I do. She's kind of the center. When I first discovered the condition of human trafficking, and I went from a sewing factory in Los Angeles to visit Thailand, I was told to visit this crazy woman, Kranam, and I say, why is she crazy? He said, well, she runs into karaoke bars and just grabs kids. You know, they're being deployed in a commercial sex industry and she just runs out. So I found her on the border of Myanmar and Thailand and she had 27 kids, all rescued, no plan. Wow. Except to get away from the traffickers who had kind of put a fatwa out on her. To, you know, they had to kill this woman who's stealing their kids. And I made a promise to her that I would build her a house. That was, that was all I was going to do. So my intention in this year leave of absence was to go and investigate, write a book. And now I meet Krunal. I'm like, okay, I'll build a house for you and your 27 kids. So I leave. And it was very funny because when I left, I asked for her email. And the Thai are very polite people. And so she said, well, give me yours. So I gave her my email. And as I'm walking away, she said to her assistant at the time, what is email anyway? <laughs> And, and her assistant said, don't worry, you'll never see that American again for the rest of your life. So uh, that was our introduction. Did that turn out to be true? Well, what happened was she, you know, I said she had no plan. She, she found someone gave her a piece of property for her 27 kids and they put one structure up using four wood poles and palm leaf roof, just covered, mm -hmm. no walls. And when I left, maybe Three months later, I'm back in California. I'm in San Francisco, and I'm writing my book and talking about Krunam. I get this email. It says, David, it's Krunam, and that one house that you had, that we had, it burned down. And she showed me a picture, and oh, we're, in, we're in deep trouble. So it says, oh, and by the way, we now have 53 kids. I go, oh, wow. Okay, I'll build you two houses, right? So I basically started Not For Sale as a way to build a village for Krunam. Because before I could even finish the uh, raising the money, she had 108 kids. So wow. if you go to Northern Thailand today, it's one of our proudest uh, kind of achievements. Is our first village, 150 kids live there any one time. And uh, those kids that I met way back then, that was 13 years ago, 14 years ago, many of them now graduate from the university. The first kids from what they call stateless children that have graduated from a Thai university. So it's really an inspiring thing. And so... Every one of the companies that I start or invest in, I demand that they have to give some percentage of their revenue, not their profit, but their revenue to not for sale. And so now I have 12 companies that are for-profit companies, they're technology, apparel, food, and they're all contributing back so that... So what you're talking about is basically a Robin Hood model. <laughs> in many ways, it is. <laughs> in many ways, it is. Redistribution, right? It's, I'm a big believer... And, you know, I don't know if you said you believe in capitalism. I believe in democratic capitalism. And the problem today is that we have feudal capitalism. 
most people in the world do not have access to capital to pursue their dreams. They can't even get a loan from a bank. They can't get anyone to believe in them and, and give them a loan or an investment. And so uh, I guess what I'm trying to do is, is that. I'm trying to democratize the capital system. Interesting. I kind of think about the difference between, I guess, types of capitalism, if you like, but also types of Christianity. Do you, I mean, do you recognize as a, you know, somebody from a theology background, the kind of evangelical Christianity that you see sort of running corporate America, for instance? How do you kind of make that make sense to the outside world? Well, I understand it well, because I grew up in evangelical until I really was in my early 20s. But even since when I was someone growing up in that world, it's changed a lot because in that world, there was kind of a distance from political life, whereas today it's, it's almost embedded, you know, it's, it's indistinguishable. Trump is the evangelical church of America, you know, or vice versa. So that's quite strange for me. But to your point, when I began studying how religion plays a role in social fabric, I went to Latin America and I became exposed to a brand of Christianity called liberation theology. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was what I wrote my dissertation on. I'm sure I'm the only venture capitalist in America that has a PhD in liberation theology. That's possible. Yeah, sure. That's possible. And, And so... Do you want to tell us what it is? I mean, it sounds lovely, but what is liberation theology? It's basically flips on its head that the fact that, you know, the way that the world is, it's constructed that way because that's how God wants it. So Donald Trump is president of the United States because God put him there, that the people who are CEOs of corporations are there because God put them in leadership. And, you know, all the way down to, you know, plantation owners in Latin America were put there and we work as slaves on his plantation because that's the order of the universe God put together. Well, that gets a lot of people off the hook really well, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Because in a way, you're right. It's like, you know, I don't like slavery much either, but that's the way God instituted it. You know, what am I to say? So, but liberation theology really flips it on its head and said, you know, that God is in favor of the poor. God is in favor of those who are outcasts. God is, so that in a way, God is working. And you see it in the life of Jesus that who do you hang out with? He didn't hang out with leaders. He actually poked a, a stick at them all the time. He was in, with the poor and the leper. and the, So sure. it flips it upside down. And so liberation is God's purpose and God's will for the world. So huh. it's really fascinating, right? So in a way, I, I got to say, you landed on it. You said you're Robin Hood. It's really more of a, I see myself as a, a Che Guevara or a, someone who's using the, the tools and methods of capitalism to bring about more liberation, bring about more opportunity, bring about more um, access. Well, one of the things that I thought was really interesting when I was kind of doing a bit of reading before this chat, Bono called you a heroic character. That's quite something to put on your LinkedIn reference, isn't it? What was the context for that? Amnesty International tour that U2 was doing many years ago. And I knew his show designer, the guy who did all like Azu TV and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he made all the set. He's a great guy, Willie Williams. And he came to San Francisco with you two on the Amnesty tour. And at the time I was doing, you know, in Latin America, I was working in the area of liberation theology. And I took Willie to go see these wonderful murals that were being painted on the walls of an alleyway in San Francisco, the story of all the Latin American refugees and how they had come to San Francisco and the terrible experiences they had. He goes, Bono and Edge would love this. Could I bring them tomorrow? Would you come back and show them? So sure. So I, you know, walked them through and, and you know, we're walking through. Bono's just really moved. He goes, I want to go to Latin America with you. I want to go to Nicaragua and El Salvador with you. Said, when are you going next? And I said, um, about six weeks. So I'm, he goes, well, I'm going to be there. I'm going to join you. I thought, oh, yeah, all right. That's going to happen. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Lo and behold, six weeks later, he and Ali, his wife, show up and we traveled together across Central America. And it was when they were putting together um, Joshua Tree album. So, Wow, 87? That was 86, 87, yeah. So the lyrics, those songs are a lot of experiences of Bono and I together in Ali in El Salvador. Uh, like Bolt the Blue Sky is when we're in a village in El Salvador together. Mothers of the Disappear. I mean, so many of that, that whole album. Yeah, I mean, I think Bono saw firsthand that I was willing to be on the ground and do work rather than just holding up politics, but rather people who are willing to put their feet on the ground. So he admired that, I guess. Well, you talk a little bit in some of your writing about this idea of workplace spirituality, this idea that we can bring whatever our concept of spirituality is into what we do on a day-to-day basis. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's unfortunate that so many people feel like they have to leave the best of themselves behind when they go into their workplace. And my values and the things that I believe are priorities for my life, well, I just put them aside when I go to work. And so I feel like that is such a sacrifice of one's own personhood that it's not worth it. And, you know, you're now seeing a Z generation demanding that. They say, well, I'm not going to take a job that doesn't somehow fulfill my purpose and my sense of journey, you know. So, but I think it's much more difficult for people who are boomers or Y generation to think of work as something other than I make money so that I can, you know, maybe when I have free time, I can pursue the things that are important to me. And never expect that, of course, you can't practice your values at work. It's work. I guess it's that kind of when you walk in the door that you're not kneeling down to the priorities or idols of that world, but that you maintain your sense of integrity and dignity and sense of worth. If a company can't support that, then you need to go find another job. Right. Which is not always the easiest thing to do in the world. It's not. And, but I'd say that it's funny that most people who, you know, I certainly feel that's true for many people I know who work for factories or work in agricultural fields. Or, But I find that the same story is told to me by lawyers and people who are, you know, uh, IT professionals. And, and it really is, the, you know, when it comes down to it, I call the golden manacles. They really, you know, they're driven more by salary than they are some greater purpose. And I just don't feel it's worth the cost. Interesting. And certainly in the States and other places as well, a corporation has the status of an individual. Yeah. And so it kind of conveniently has the same rights as an individual. Does it have the same responsibilities? I mean, can you talk about the soul of a corporation, for instance? Well, you know, I did write a book, uh, Saving the Corporate Soul. I address the fact that every entity creates an ethos or it creates a soul. And unfortunately, yeah, I recommend those who are listening today see a documentary called The Corporation where it talks about the dysfunction of that individual. And I can't think of it. Well, the diagnosis is a psychopath. Yeah, it's a psychopath. In that film, yeah. Exactly. I firmly believe that Donald Trump, he's a psychopath. It's a soul. It's a tormented soul and how it's impacting not only what happens in, within government, but how it impacts the whole nation. And so I see corporations do that as much as corporate politics. When you see a leader who builds a different kind of ethos, when you see a leader who builds a different kind of spirituality that's present in the company, the ripple effect that is just tremendous. And so I don't think we can underestimate the setting of the conditions of that spirituality within a entity. Right. On the grand scheme of things, how close are we to abolishing slavery? Totally. I think, unfortunately, we're still a long way away from it. I'd like to say that we're, we're very close. But And again, I feel like you've addressed it around exploitation, and it's a part of the 
fabric. Unfortunately, almost every NGO in the world that fights slavery fights the consequences. It fights the symptoms. It you know helps victims. It, it rescues people. It, and I think it's fantastic. We do that at Mount for Sale, but it's not addressing the root causes. It's not going up to the top of the river and say, okay, how do we stop people from being thrown into the river to drown? And that's then addressing the fact that people are so easily tossed aside. And, and I guess that the reason I started my investment company was I want to create models for businesses that don't demand exploitation as a part of the process of success. Unfortunately, in America particularly, but in Europe as well, exploitation is built into the business model. Right? How do we get the cheapest resources? How do we get the cheapest labor? How do we get the... And even if we have to set a standard of fair trade, quote unquote, it's just the minimal that we can do so that people can survive. But we have to get a profit that is acceptable to a standard that the market requires. Unless we create different business models, unless we create different companies that prioritize people and planet, then we're going to see the same exploitation and human trafficking over and over again. Is this because we're using the wrong success metrics, incentives? Uh, exactly. Because if you incentivize, people act towards their incentives. And, you know, even say, I remember when before I started uh, Just Business, I was at an office and I went to, I won't name it right now, but I, one of the top apparel companies in America. And I went to the head of manufacturing and I said, you know, look at, I could find you a place to manufacture your clothes, at maybe a dollar more for every denim jacket, but the people would be able to live this much better. And, and he goes, well, listen, it's easy for you to say, because you're coming here begging me to change our behavior. Why don't you start your own company and do it? Because I'm not going to be rewarded or even keep my job if I give up that dollar. And so you're incentivized at that level of sourcing or manufacturing to drive down the price. And it is down to a dollar a jacket. And so that's when I decided I could never change the corporation as it exists today. I need to start creating other companies where people, wow, it's really possible. And that's my goal is to, I have no messianic vision that I'm going to create this empire myself, but I'm trying to create models where other people go, oh, wow, I'd love to play with that model in technology or in apparel or in food. And that's one of the reasons where there's great disparity across the board, we have companies because we're really experimenting in the type of company, the type of ownership and business or investment model and exits. You know, do we go IPO? Do we sell the company? Do we try and keep it? We're, we're experimenting by trying to find out what brings about the most justice. Because it strikes me that there are people who have had your types of experiences that would come to the conclusion that it would be necessary not to save the soul of capitalism, but to completely overthrow it. What has led you to think, no, 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 this is something that's worth hanging on to and it's something that's worth, you know, saving? Well, it's a good question. And I suppose it's one based in historical experimentation. I think the revolution model of, say, communism and, of course, socialism is, is a broad term, but say in Nicaragua, they had the socialist revolution. And historically, I just haven't found that those models of a vanguard that's going to take the means of production and turn them upside down has worked out very well for the poor. I find that the vanguard becomes quickly as corrupt as the people who preceded them. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that I do believe that economic capital has an incredible power if it can be delivered to a broad number of people. And so to me, it's about access. It's not about capital in and of itself. I think it's access to capital. And the fact that we've allowed for 1% of the population to own 80% of the world's resources, it's criminal. It's not even just immoral, it's criminal. And to me, the answer is, well, then we need to do what? We need to find a revolutionary model. If it worked, I would be all for it, by the way. That's what liberation theology is. is if it works, I'm just not a big believer that that's going to bring about the most amount of justice right today. 
Sure. I did a little bit of work in Brazil with uh, some collectives there, and their catchphrase was about solidarity economy, this idea of kind capitalism. Is that something workable, do you think? Listen, I really do believe in that. And I do believe that what needs to take place is greater sophistication around then how those local solidarity economies can find leverage into bigger markets so that they don't get squeezed. And so I think it takes a savvy strategy to go from just kind of a more naive, let's create a local solidarity economy. You have to figure out how to deal with bigger capital that will try and squeeze you out. And I think these are the things that I hope a whole other generation of entrepreneurs start experimenting with. But it comes from a commitment first and foremost to humanity and not first and foremost how much I can gain from my own material wealth. Right. Is there a theological underpinning that we can use for this? Is there a parable that we can point to as our North Star that we could use as an example? What's the guidance in the wisdom literature? It's funny because I wouldn't even call myself a Christian today uh, just because of what that word has come to mean in America. It's got a bit of baggage. <laughs> have to say. But I do like what you're asking about is the parables, you know, that uh, to me, they're everything from some of those parables of the Good Samaritan, you know, who's our neighbor and and who do we invest and call our brother or sister. That to me is so powerful. It's the parable of the seeds. You throw the seeds in the bad land, you throw them in the good land. There's so many parables that they probably are my backbeat, you know, using a musical term. And just partly because I was raised with it and partly I just see some great wisdom in them. It's the wisdom of turning upside down our expectations of worth and of value. When I saw in America recently Black Lives Matter, to me, of course it Black Lives Matter. That of course that should be a movement. Of course, because that's those are the parables. That's what it's all about. So are you an optimist? I guess you'd have to be. I'm an incredible optimist. You'd have to be, right? Yeah, it was so weird because for what I see in the world, I'm constantly in places like Uganda and Congo and uh, Vietnam and Hanoi and the streets of Hanoi. You would think that I would be a pessimist or a cynical or I, for whatever reason, am inspired by the things that we are succeeding in doing at Not For Sale and Just Business. Those inspire me and I'm not dragged down by the things we're not doing. And I can't even begin to explain why. But in fact, my daughter said, you're the most optimistic person I've ever met in my life. And I don't know, I just always, I can see, not optimistic in a delusional way, but it's like, okay, based on what we have now, Mm -hmm. what do we do next? What do we do tomorrow? Well, there's two things here. One is we're in such a position that we can only go up from here. But the other thing is, apart from everything else, human beings... No, 100% that we're privileged to be an optimist in some regard. So I have education. I have, it feels like I always have options the next day to work myself out of a conundrum. Sure. And also the flip side is, apart from anything else, human beings are pretty cool for the most part. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that I, as much as I see the terrible things that human beings do to each other, I meet extraordinary human beings and I'm inspired by them. I feel a sense of solidarity with them and I believe in them. So uh, Fantastic. David, I feel like I've done that today. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, real pleasure. Real fun to chat with you. Cheers. Thank you. That's David Batstone, and that's the MTF Podcast. You can find David on Twitter, where he occasionally posts as at Dave Batstone, but you can get more recent updates and more regular updates from Not For Sale, which is just at NFS. The MTF Podcast's out every Friday, more or less, so don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and you can share, like, rate, and review. I'm Dubber, you'll find me at Dubber on Twitter, and you will find everything MTF at our shiny new at MTF Labs account on Twitter, and at mtflabs.net online. 
This episode was edited by Sergio Castillo. The intro music was by Michael Shines with a Y. And this is music by Airtone. And the MTF audio logo, as ever, was created by Run Dreamer. Stay safe, have a great week, and talk soon. Cheers. Thank you.